I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the latest in the U.S. and Taiwan and China, we have with us Dr. Michael Green who is our Japan chair at CSIS and our senior vice president for Asia and soon to be embarking on a journey to Australia. Mike, it is so great to have you on the podcast. It's great to be on the truth of the matter. Tell us what you're going to be doing in Australia so our listeners know. Well, I'm going to become the CEO of the U.S. Studies Center at the University of Sydney. And this center was set up about 15 years ago, um, frankly, at a time when U.S.-Australia relations were a little strained because of Iraq and other things. And, and the growing economic influence of China. So they set up this center to teach about America, to study our alliance with Australia, look for policy solutions. So it's kind of half think tank like CSIS and half an academic program with courses about the United States. So I will have a nice historic building at the University of Sydney and a staff of experts on trade and defense and technology, and also a, a faculty of about eight people who teach everything from American politics to the history of New Orleans and jazz. No kidding. <laughs> no kidding on that last one. Super popular uh, courses with the students. So it's kind of a interesting gig. And I felt like, I mean, I love CSIS and Georgetown where I teach, but, you know, I thought Australia's on the front lines of geopolitical competition. Really interesting time for my kids and family to to go abroad before they go to college. So we, we decided we'd go for it and hope you'll visit. I can't wait to visit. And I can't wait for you to have me as a visiting fellow in both communications, my you know so-called expertise, and in New Orleans, my true expertise. We'll do it. We'll do it. You, you, they can't get enough New Orleans down under. All right. Well, we're there. And we will prepare many lectures uh, on the music and culture of New Orleans for that. But let's talk about Taiwan for a second. President Biden, of course, has indicated that the United States would intervene military in the event of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. He says that it isn't a change. He's not changing policy. It's the same policy. Let's just talk about why Taiwan is so important to the United States and what you think President Biden meant in the way he answered a reporter's question about the issue. Let me start with the what he meant part. And I don't think this is a change in U.S. policy. And I actually lived through this in April 2021 when George W. Bush was president and was asked on a TV show, you know, a hypothetical question. What would you do if China attacked Taiwan? And he said we would rise up and defend Taiwan. And it, there was a big kerfuffle and he went beyond his talking points but he said, said what he really felt. And at the time, we thought, you know what? It's good he said the truth. Uh, it was useful. But then we walked it back a little bit, just like the White House is now. Joe Biden did the same thing. He indicated that he, and really he was saying he personally has the resolve to stand up and defend Taiwan if China attacks. And that, I think, was useful because the reality is China is increasing pressure on Taiwan, especially military pressure with Flights of bombers now regularly racing towards Taiwan, Chinese uh, PLA Navy ships circumnavigating Taiwan, huge bomber and missile exercises, which we can see by satellite are aimed at attacking not only Taiwan, but our bases in Japan and Japanese bases. Very, very belligerent. So I thought it was useful that he indicated that as president, he was 
um, absolutely willing to defend Taiwan. But the question was, if it comes to that, which is kind of is out, because what's the that? And the reality is U.S. policy, since we normalized relations with China, and then in 1979, Congress passed the Taiwan Relations Act, has been what we call strategic ambiguity. We would be prepared to defend Taiwan. We help Taiwan under that act by providing them with defensive articles. But the act also says an attack on Taiwan would be viewed as a grave threat to our interests, which is absolutely right. So I think what Joe Biden said was maybe 30% gaff and 70% saying out loud what he really thinks. And the latter part was kind of useful, even as, if they walk it back. As for the why it matters, as the Taiwan Relations Act said, and that was back in 79, an attack on Taiwan would be a grave threat to our interests. And Taiwan matters to us for three major reasons. And we put this in a report in CSIS two years ago on Taiwan that Bonnie Glazer, who was with us at the time, and Richard Bush from Brookings and I chaired. And the first reason is geopolitics. Taiwan is in the first island chain. You know, the first island chain runs from Japan through Taiwan, the Philippines to the South China Sea. And for well over 100 years, and certainly in the post-war era, U.S. strategy has looked at that like the Fulda Gap in Europe. We cannot let a hostile power control any part of the First Island chain because they would cut off Japan, cut off Australia, and be able to project power right into the Pacific and threaten Guam and Hawaii. So the geographic, geopolitical piece is huge if Taiwan were to fall under Chinese military control. Secondly, and we particularly, I think, feel this after Ukraine, we have a stake in free people, in democracies, being able to thrive without coercion and military threat. And just as the world realized that Putin's attack on Ukraine threatened their own freedoms, ultimately, I think we have a stake, in, and increasingly, it's interesting, the Japanese, the Australians, the Europeans see it too, we have a stake in Taiwan sorting out its future as a democracy, not being coerced and attacked. And the third reason, which was not true in 79, when the Taiwan Relations Act passed, but is really true now, is that Taiwan is home to the most advanced semiconductor manufacturing in the world with TSMC. And in the AI, artificial intelligence competition with China, the democracies are 10 to 20 years ahead on semiconductors, which is critical to artificial intelligence. But if China just seized TSMC, we'd lose that lead. So, you know, it's it's geographically like the Fulda Gap, but economically it's like the Ruhr Valley, you know, which the Germans and French fought for in three wars, Franco-Prussian War, World War I, World War II. So it's got economic importance too. And I think Congress and the American public know that. You see a much higher level of support for Taiwan in Congress and in the public. Let's talk about strategic ambiguity for a minute. What does that actually mean? Well, that's a really good question. You know, the U.S. never like passed a law or... No U.S. cabinet member gave a speech saying what strategic ambiguity is. It's just kind of a label people used. When I worked in the Pentagon in the 90s, late 90s, what we meant by it was we have strategic ambiguity. We don't say what we'll do. So, for example, we have treaties ratified by the Senate with NATO, with Japan and Australia and Korea. And Article 5 of those treaties says we will defend them if they're attacked. So it's pretty close to a blank check. The president has to order it. It's not completely automatic, but it's pretty close to a blank check. So strategic ambiguity with Taiwan means we don't have a security treaty. We've normalized relations with China. And so we're, we're a little ambiguous. We don't give a blank check. There's no Senate ratified treaty with an Article 5 trigger like we have with Japan or Australia or Korea. 
And also, we've kept it ambiguous because while the current government of Tsai Ing-wen is very steady, very respected, you know, from time to time in Taiwan, we've had leaders who we weren't sure would be so steady and, and have always worried a little bit about getting dragged into a fight because of a provocation that we didn't want. So, you know, there's a, there's a feeling in the U.S. government, and I think if you tried to test this in Congress, there'd also be a feeling in Congress that we don't want to give a blank check because there is a movement in Taiwan, completely understandable in my view, but a movement for independence. And independence of Taiwan, while emotionally quite compelling, is really dangerous because that would trigger Chinese uh, use of force. So we don't want to encourage that. So it's very, very tricky. But we've always said we have tactical clarity, meaning we have the ability and the will to defend our interests. And our interests would very likely be severely threatened if, if Taiwan were attacked. So that's the kind of, you know, we can do it if we want to. Don't make us. But we're not saying for sure we do it. That's the kind of strategic ambiguity, tactical clarity thing that Joe Biden kind of went crashing through. <laughs> um, but in the end, I, in my view, the fact that he said the, to quote Homer Simpson, he said the soft part loud and the loud part soft. I think it was probably yeah. useful to show American willpower. So the ambiguity also has to do with the fact that we subscribe to a one China policy and have since Nixon and Henry Kissinger opened up China in the 70s, right? That's right. And we have significant uh, stakes in relations with China, economic, geopolitical stability. And that is true today, even though under Xi Jinping, China is challenging our interests in many, many different areas from human rights and democracy and what we see in Hong Kong and Xinjiang to China's Belt and Road Initiative, which often exploits corruption in countries and sometimes seeks Chinese bases sometimes helps with development, but sometimes it's threatening to the just incredible buildup of the PLA. I mean, they're going to quadruple their strategic nuclear forces over the next decade. We almost have never seen such a nuclear buildup. So that's why in the midterms, you know, China is such a big issue, why the American public no longer trusts China. But we still do have a stake in a stable relationship, an economic relationship perhaps one day a productive relationship. So I don't think the consensus is there to tinker with this and somehow, you know, end our diplomatic relations with China. I, I just don't think that the, the Congress or the public are there, even though you'll sometimes hear that. You know, and when you think about it all the way through, and there's been so many war games, you know, in both publicly and privately about this, you know, it's pretty clear, and you mentioned it, that China has really massively built up the PLA it's said that they have the largest Navy in the world. They may be untested and haven't fought, but you know it's not exactly like the United States would welcome a conflict when we only have two air bases close by that we can refuel through. Our carriers are said to be vulnerable to their missiles, et cetera, et cetera. By the same token, it doesn't seem that China really wants to be in a, you know, in a war with the United States either. If China opened up with everything they've got, they're ballistic missiles, including so-called carrier killers, submarines and everything, it would be devastating. And the U.S. and probably Japan and Taiwan would take massive casualties. We'd lose a lot of ships. But so would China. And, you know, does China want to escalate to full nuclear war? I seriously doubt it. So China's strategy is to convince Japan and us Europe, Australia, and especially Taiwan, that resistance is futile. So I was sent with 
former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mike Mullen and Michelle Flournoy and Evan Medeiros and, and Megan O'Sullivan by the administration to Taiwan shortly after the Russian attack to reassure Taiwan. And while we were there, the Chinese foreign ministry was trolling us on Twitter, saying reassurance is futile. And the Global Times was writing long op-eds saying these are a bunch of has-beens. If this is all the administration can send, they're not going to defend you. So it really revealed their strategy, which is to get the Taiwanese people to say resistance is futile. Let's just give up and join, you know, because we got no future otherwise. But what's interesting is polls show that as the Taiwanese people watch Ukraine, there's a large majority saying we would fight too. We care about our freedom too. And rather than getting scared away, what you see in Japan and Australia is former prime ministers and even cabinet secretaries saying, of course, we'd help defend Taiwan, even though they have no such obligation. And you see support in Taiwan increasing. So China's strategy is not to use force, but to make us think that any fight would be futile. And so far, in a way, that's not working. They're, they're stealing our resolve. And Zelensky's helping in Ukraine to show what's at stake. But that said, if we can't maintain deterrence, if we can't make it too hard for them, we also want Beijing to think this would not work. And there we've slipped behind the last decade or two. And you see the Marine Corps retooling its doctrine, the Japanese talking about doubling their defense spending, a new focus on the kind of surface-to-surface missiles and unmanned systems that would allow us to fight inside China's missile envelope. But we were just starting out on that. We have 5, 10, 15 years before we can start really rebuilding deterrence. So we are in a kind of perilous sort of transition phase. We're not yet where we need to be to really complicate Chinese planning. And we are looking at Xi Jinping now in a new light because of what Putin did. You know, these authoritarian leaders may be willing to roll the dice. So it is a perilous time, although I, I do think the chances of an actual war are still low. It is it is more perilous than in any recent time. And Xi Jinping clearly reeling from COVID and their economy as well. The main impact of COVID on Putin and Xi Jinping may be isolation. I mean, they, they've had a long summit with each other, but they're not meeting other world leaders, not really. So you can sort of see how it would create a feedback loop for these two leaders that's dangerous. And, you know, yes men in Zhengdanghai and the Kremlin are saying, I mean, literally, the Chinese line is the West is declining, the East is rising, the Americans have no stomach, and look at Afghanistan, and look at Trump's isolationism, and they're incompetent. That feedback loop is probably pretty dangerous, probably a big factor in Putin's judgment call. And so people now looking at China are saying, what is Xi Jinping thinking? What is he being told? And the fact that the economy in, I mean, China's economy is slower than the U.S. now for the first time in decades. And the leadership's always more worried about domestic stability. Does that make them more belligerent or more careful? You know, it's one of those toy costs. It's hard to say. Well, it's a good thing that the United States sent the has-beens over to Taiwan. To, you know, if our has-beens are you and Michelle Flournoy and, and Mike Mullen, uh, I think we're doing pretty good. We'll put our has-beens up against our has-beens anytime. Any day. Well, let's talk about Ukraine for a second. What has been the United States and Taiwan's real takeaways from this war in Ukraine? When we were in Taipei, our delegation heard, and also I've heard from Japanese and other leaders in the region, two really important and I think insightful conclusions about what Ukraine meant for security in Asia. And number one is a free people have to be prepared to fight for their freedom and on their own homeland. 
And until now, the Taiwanese military has assumed there won't be a lot of fighting in Taiwan. They'll fight them in the Taiwan Strait or in the skies. And before a single Chinese PLA soldier lands in Taiwan, by then the American 7th Fleet will be there and it'll be okay. And they're starting to wake up to the fact that if you don't have the ability to, to fight on your own homeland, then the other guys are going to go for a coup de main, uh, what Putin tried to do. They're going to try to topple you and take over. So you've got to have the, the capability, but also demonstrate the willpower to fight for a long time. And Taiwan has caves and mountains and jungles. It's, it's, it's perfect, frankly, for resisting an invasion. But they've not been buying the equipment for that. So one big conclusion we heard was Taiwan needs to focus more on what they call asymmetrical capabilities, anti-ship, anti-tank missiles, training their military. The Taiwanese have a draft. They've reduced it to three months of service, which is, you know, it, not much. And now there's a consensus. They have to go back up to a year, if not two years. And they're looking at procuring things like that. And the Japanese also are much more focused now on surface-to-surface -surface missiles and survivability. And they're getting real. It makes it real, what you have to do to fight and survive. The second big conclusion is that uh, security for Taiwan is about more than just the U.S. and Japan. Europe matters. And the fact that the Biden administration built this international coalition to punish Putin with not just NATO countries, but Japan, Singapore, Australia, Korea now, shows that you can deter an adversary if they think that they're going to be punished by the whole world. And the Chinese assumption, I think, has been that they will find a way to peel off and neutralize the Europeans because Europeans just want to sell cars and things to China. And Ukraine, I think, is really useful. I mean, it's silver lining, if you will, because it demonstrates that the United States and frankly, only the United States has the ability to create a global coalition of powerful economies and democracies, not all of them, but a very powerful coalition to cause some real hurt for anybody who defies international will and attacks a free people. And the, the Taiwanese government, the Tsai Ing-wen and Taipei are alive to that. And they, you know, it's really good because the fact that Europe matters to Taiwan so much now, that Australia and Canada matter so much is healthy because when the politicians in Taipei only cared what Washington thought, they would seek out people who would support them in Congress no matter what they did. But now they, their audience is bigger and they have to they have to be like Zelensky. They have to be resolute. They have to be non-provocative on their part. They have to be uh, thinking about global opinion. And that actually helps us a lot because it incentivizes the, the leadership in Taiwan to be model citizens so that if they are attacked, the whole world will be on their side. So I think it's really important. Complicates Chinese planning. It makes Taiwan a much better partner and more reliable security state. Or, or partner. So yeah, those are the two big conclusions. And it's got to be, you know, I'm sure in Beijing, planners are rethinking a lot of a lot of what they assumed, and maybe in ways that are more dangerous. But for now, it's going to cause some pause. Well, so that brings me to my next question. You know, Taiwan's defense budget is about 2% of its GDP. Is that actually enough? It, it really probably is not. And it probably should go up to two and a half, three percent 3%. We'll see what happens. The TV shows in Taiwan and, you know, Taiwanese 24-hour news makes Fox and MSNBC look like Sesame Street. I mean, it is hyperactive. It is over the top. People yelling into the microphone and talking to people on the street and um, wow. high testosterone, like 
super, you know, super fast paced. And it's all about Ukraine now. Yeah. There is a real debate about increasing national service again, increasing defense spending. But there is a negative lining to this, too, because there, there is a, a group in Taiwan, the so-called deep blue camp, that thinks resistance is futile. They should just lock in with Beijing for their economic future. I personally suspect that those people get a lot of help from Beijing, including social media and political interference. And there's a lot of evidence for that. And they are arguing that what Ukraine shows is America won't fight because we don't have boots on the ground in Ukraine. And that narrative is, they've been pretty effective with that narrative. Confidence in that the U.S. will come to Taiwan's defense is declining now because of Ukraine. They're getting serious about their own defense, but they're doubting about where, whether we'd be there. So the the, the narrative they, battle is real. The, Taiwan is a very polarized place, like us. And there is an audience that thinks the government's just wrong no matter what. And the KMT, the opposition party, is split. There are patriots who think Taiwan needs to build up its defense, but there are others in the deep blue in that camp who think, like I said, just sign on with Beijing. Resistance is futile. Those people are um, very clever and are building narratives with help from China that are hurting us. So the narrative wars about Ukraine are largely in our favor around the world, but not completely. You know, it's game on. So there's been about 23 billion in U.S. arms sales to Taiwan since 2010. Do you expect those sales to continue at the current pace or really escalate? I think the arms sales will probably move up. How much? I don't know. But I think Ukraine is causing countries everywhere to increase defense spending. And uh, Japan's talking about going from 1% of GDP to 2% in, 10, in five years, the LDP says. I don't think they can do it, but it'll definitely go up. Australia's going up. You know, Germany's going to double. Taiwan's in that, in that sort of trend as well. The composition of arms sales is going to be important, though, because typically we you know, focus with Taiwan on big platforms. They need like stingers and anti-ship missiles and, and mines, but that, there's a problem there for them because they're going to have to get in line. We're shipping a lot of that to Ukraine. Obviously, Japan and our allies in, in NATO want it. Javelin's very popular. You know, there's a long wait list to get that. So this raises real implications about our defense production base and, frankly, whether we need to expand it not only here but with Australia and Japan and others to be cranking out more of these weapons to you know, keep um, keep the other guys at bay. The the Japanese and Taiwanese militaries, according to reports, don't have enough missiles and ammunition to fight more than a few days. So yes, Taiwan's starting to focus on the right stuff, but we don't, you know, we're not delivering it as fast as they want, frankly, um, because we are, it's, it's yet another supply chain problem, really. It's a lot of the same issues, semiconductors, workers, and demand. You can't get a, a, a Toyota RAV4 and you also can't get a Stinger. Yeah, it's easier to get a RAV4, but yes, <laughs> they're, they're, both, they're both hard to get. You know, Mike, I don't know. Uh, my wife and son went looking for RAV4s, really rare. I am, frankly, going through this with Australia right now. I'm trying to order a car ahead of time because it's such a long lead. I'm going to be bicycling around Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> good for the environment, good for you, right? Yeah. Oh, man. Well, let me ask you, finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't. What What's the significance of the U.S. Navy's increased frequency of sailings through the Taiwan Strait? Is this a provocation on our part? What is this? We regularly do, we, the U.S., U.S. Navy regularly does a combination of 
so-called freedom of navigation operations where we sail in contested waters to demonstrate that from our perspective, it's international um, uh, waters. We do transits in Taiwan Strait to show the flag. It's a demonstration of, I, I always, when I was in the White House, called this the Nike, just do it thing. Like to show that we sail where we want. It, we're not going to go in people, countries' territorial waters, but if if countries even as powerful as China assert that they have greater control uh, than before, we, we don't accept that and we demonstrate that. Sometimes we fly bombers, but but there's something about a U.S. Navy frigate or destroyer going through that sends a real signal. Sometimes we do them very quietly and it's never in the press. Sometimes we want it in the press. So the operational tempo kind of goes up and down depending on the geopolitics. But at a time when Beijing is significantly ramping up its military operations, as I said, flights of bombers, fighters streaking towards Taiwan and crossing the line in the strait that both sides was careful not to cross for decades, circumnavigating uh, Taiwan with, with military ships and so forth. We, we on the US side are going to be showing that we're not intimidated. So the, the Chinese Beijing claims that we are provoking by increasing. I, I'm not privy to the actual schedule, so I don't know for sure. But if we are increasing, it's marginal and incremental and largely in reaction to a significant increase in Chinese military maneuvers around Taiwan. And we kind of have to do it to show we're not intimidated. As I said, China's plan is not to fight. It's to intimidate everyone so much that we just give up. And this is showing we're not going to give up. And it, that ultimately enhances deterrence, even if there's a little bit of risk in it. Mike, this has been fascinating. And I think the next time we'll talk will be when you're down under. And so you'll be able to deliver perspective directly from down under. So thank you very much. Thank you for all of your service to CSIS. CSIS won't be the same for me without you. And I know we're going to continue to stay affiliated with you going forward. And I will look forward to continuing our conversations. Thank you. Happy to come back on. Truth of the matter, maybe I'll have an Australian accent. And, and of course, I'm going to keep doing my podcast with CSIS, the Asia Chessboard, in partnership with Jude Blanchett. So we have a China Allies bookends to look at strategic trends in the region. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 